Even though we live abroad, as women of Indian origin, we have a common thread that binds us together because of our strong cultural background. NRI Women is a platform for women to share their stories and experiences on various topics. Our podcast is about inspiring NRI women and their amazing stories. Some of the stories we've covered include growing up in a joint family in India, adopting a child as a single woman, and rebuilding one's life after the loss of a child. Take a listen. We hope you'll be inspired or learn something new. I'm Bettina. And I'm Lenora. And we're the voices behind NRI Woman Podcast. We're all heart. Just look for NRI Woman wherever you get your podcasts or find us at nriwoman.com. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. Mommy, this is okay content that is not suitable for kids like me. Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Pline and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system, but we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Woo! Thanks, Liam. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Diana. How was your week? It was good. It was busy. Oh my God, it was so busy. I got some fun podcast stuff in the mail. Ooh. I know. I got some podcast stuff that you know about because you helped me make sure that it was beautiful before I ordered it. And then I got some podcast stuff you don't know about that I'm going to bring you as a surprise tomorrow. But it's like my birthday was last week. I know. And I still haven't technically given you your birthday present. And this is not birthday. This is totally podcast. I think we deserve treats for our podcast all the time. I think you're correct. And not just these lovely glasses of Baileys that we are currently enjoying. (laughs) Very lovely glasses of Baileys. Mm. Well. How was your week? It was fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Maybe we should leave it there. Yeah. No, I don't don't really want to talk about my week. But you know what I do want to talk about? What, what, what? The fact that Crime Crazy is sponsored by Dave Hatt and Seb Bryce. (laughs) Your transitions crack me up. (laughs) (laughs) Almost as as much as I love David Hatt and and Seb Bryce. Yay! I can't talk, guys. I'm sorry. Did you just say almost as much as you slut them? Love. (laughs) That is not what I heard on the first pass of that. (laughs) Guys, I'm sure you're both very lovely. (laughs) The end. Okay, continue. (laughs) You've met at least one of them. It's true. Show sponsors support Crime Crazy through Patreon at the $10 per month level or above. Thank you. Thank you. like to give a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, uh, including our newest Patreon supporter, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. If you would like to support Crime Crazy, you can check us out on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash crimecrazypodcast or just search for Crime Crazy because that's easier. All patrons get a monthly shout out on the show. You know how else you can get a shout out on the show? Wait, hold on. I bet Liam knows. Reviews. Right on, man. (laughs) (laughs) You could even give them if you're not a dying antelope. (laughs) Reviews. 
My microphone is damp now. Gross. <laughs> so we have a review shout out. And Aaron found this through some kind of forensic review sleuthing. <laughs> we only just sat down with our Baileys, guys. That's, um, I did. I um, I don't even remember what I was doing. I think it was one of those, I'm going to Google myself, but I Googled the podcast. And then this review came up, and I have no idea if we've ever shouted it out. So... So, uh, Chris M. 1982, thank you for your lovely review. Uh, Whenever that might have been, we're sorry. Yes, it could have been a really long time ago, but we still appreciate it. We sure do. Thank you. If you are so inclined, you can follow Crime Crazy on all the social medias at Crime Crazy Pod or visit our website at CrimeCrazyPodcast.com. All right. Erin. Yeah. Did you learn anything this week? Oh, Diana. Uh, I did. Oh, no. I learned something about our legal system. God damn it. I know. The, one, like we, my standards are so low. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, all right, spit it out. So it's about three states. The first is Michigan. So in 1990, um, and this is this all makes a difference, but you won't get to know why until later, although I bet you could probably figure it out. Okay. In 1990, the Michigan Board of Parole considered more than 11,000 cases, and they paroled 8,888 offenders. I can only imagine that like the last one, they were like, we don't really want to let him out, but then it would be 8888, so I guess we'll give him a shot. <laughs> like sometimes you drive around the block to get the really cool thing on the odometer? Yeah, kind of like that. Like you know yeah. it's not a good idea, and yet... So, and yet there's a palindrome coming out, and how can, right. you, how can you not? You have to. It's just, you just have to. Um, about 20% of the 8,888 offenders paroled returned back to prison after new arrests. And another 20% went back to prison because of parole violations. Okay. Um, so that's Michigan. Just a little bit of like 1990 Michigan. Virginia, on the other hand, which is um, important only in that I used to live there, uh, <laughs> ended its discretionary parole in 1995. So two things about that. One, that's discretionary parole. They still have like compassionate release and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is anyone sentenced before 1995 could still be eligible for parole even though they no longer allow that okay so they're kind of grandfathered into that they are which applies to about 300 people in the whole state not yeah surprisingly few and then minnesota has parole as well as a number of other ways in which you can get released without necessarily having served your sentence um, but their stats are super, super hard to find and follow. So hmm. my sentence about Minnesota was, there is parole here. <laughs> Excellent. 
<laughs> so that's what I've learned. <laughs> Have you learned anything? Um, I did, and it's. I, I'm not gonna lie; it's kind of been bothering me all week. You learned um, something that has been bothering you. Yeah. Okay. So, you know the giant squid, right? Yes. Okay. So, like that piece of knowledge, just to begin with, kind of freaks me out that it exists. Okay, that's fair. But then I, but I then mean, I learned this. Okay. The giant squid's throat runs directly through its brain, so that yeah. if it eats something too big, it gives itself brain damage. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is so just I don't fucked know. up. It is really bad design. Not design. Major design flaws right no there. No design. No designers here. Well, okay. Evolutionary? Like, how did that happen? Really? Well, apparently, either it's evolutionarily advantageous to be just dumb as fuck wandering around with TMIs. Or TBIs. Yeah. TBIs. TMI well, is TMI. a whole, whole different thing. Right. Maybe that's but, how it does its brain bleach. When it hears something TMI... <laughs> Then it swallows a ship, and it doesn't remember. I'm just not going to chew this, and I hope it hits the right memory, (laughs) and not like the day my child was born, (laughs) and my many squid children. (laughs) Diana and her many squid children. I'm just picturing all of the social media blasts that we're going to do this week, and just (sighs) keeping them in the back of my mind. Oh, man. I will I not just... swallow a ship so I can remember them. <laughs> so, questions. I have questions. <laughs> also, <laughs> this all fits so much with the podcast I'm going to talk about later. But anyway, questions mm-hmm. are, so an octopus is insanely smart, Right. And they can empathize. They have double lobed brains. They have extra like kind of centralized nervous systems that are not quite brains, but sort of like brains in all of their arms. Uh, They're just fucking incredible. Anyway, something about squid. Oh, are squid smart? Do they start smart before they eat chips? I don't know. And I'm going to be honest, I did not look too hard into this because squid deeply freak me Do out. Do octopuses, octopuses, pie, <laughs> they freak you out? Haven't we had this we, conversation? Yeah. Um, sometimes. But with them, like the whole squid, like just all of it <laughs> freaks me out. And well, but octopus, octopods. Octop- <laughs> The octopus. The eight-legged creatures of which you are so fond. Yes. The only time they bother me is when there's a very close-up picture of their stickers because I have that whole holes problem. Oh, yeah. That's fair. I think they're amazing. But otherwise, no. Like, they're, they're smart and they're interesting and, like, super just crazy to watch. But squid just freak me the fuck out. That's fair. I'm guessing they are not smart like an octopus is smart. No, I feel like maybe if they stopped giving themselves brain injuries on the regular, I mean, they would get a tentacle up in this world. Right. 
a tentacle. <laughs> you know that an octopus does not have a tentacle. I did not. They don't have tentacles. Tentacles um, are partially unsuckered, and sometimes they'll have like a wider lobe, almost like a a hand or something at the bottom, and that's where the suckers are. An octopus Mm -hmm. only has arms. They have um, fully suckered from where they attach until all the way down their body. Hmm. Yep. I did not know that. There you go. You've learned something else this week. I didn't. Now I've learned something else. All of the aquatic knowledge. So um, do you have crime stories? A a crime story this week? Because I have a crime story this week. I also have a crime story this week. And I'm not sure. We'll go for it. Well, I was just going to say, like, we should do a podcast or something. We both have these crime stories. And so we should probably, like, start a podcast. Oh, you know when we should have done that? Like, a year ago. I hear they're going to start taking off soon. That is true. Um, Yeah, or really even like maybe start it a couple years ago and then transition. Oh, and then I could hop in like halfway through? Yeah, you could just join after after like most of a year or a little bit over a year or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Okay. All right. So we'll be right back. We have to travel back in time. (laughs) (laughs) that's the sound of traveling back in time um okay but we should tell crime stories instead and um we'll just have to assume that the podcast stuff will happen so okay i'm going to tell you this story awesome um and so Oh, I don't even know where to begin because the mustache is so epic. Um, all right. Wait, what? Yes, that is exactly what I said. So I'm very let me, excited. Let me take a step back. Last week, I told the story of murders, as I usually do, uh, that occurred mm. in Michigan. Okay. Yes. Near Detroit. So this week, I'm going to tell you another story that occurs in Michigan near Detroit. <laughs> that awesome. is our connection. However, Yay. I chose this particular, because I don't know if you know this about Detroit, but like there's crime there. So there were several stories to choose from. The first time I ever saw bulletproof glass was in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. So there were options, um, but I chose mm-hmm. this one <laughs> specifically for really only one reason. And I'm going to share my screen with you now, and then I will share images with our listeners later. Okay. Um, this is why... Holy shit, that is an amazing. <laughs> so, Dude has the most epic mustache ever. And it's like it's both long but like contained and like oddly pleasing in color and bushy. And right, but like not an intentional and it does and like not it might be his soft. Face. Yes, it looks no. like looks like cocker spaniel ears, actually. <gasps> That's exactly what it looks like. Meanwhile, he looks like someone's grandpa who's wearing a stick-on cocker spaniel ear mustache. Right. Like I could see him with a nice trim mustache. Yeah. Like, that would fit him. His hair is very short. Yep. You know, he looks very nicely put together. Yep. And then he's got this like fucking pirate mustache. Walrus mustache. 
Yes. So bad news. He's a serial killer. Oh. <laughs> so. Um, okay. So let me tell you the story. So his name is Leslie Williams. I think it's actually Leslie Allen. Allen, not Allen. Allen Williams. <laughs> that would be alien. Yes. Leslie <laughs> Allen Williams. Um, and he was born in or on July 4th of 1950. America. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Right. He had a shitty childhood. And no. I know. Um, lots of, of abuse, physical abuse throughout his childhood, which I mean, that absolutely sucks because presumably when he was born in 1953, he was not a horrible human being. Um, and that probably contributed to the fact that starting at age 17, so 1970, he started just breaking every law he could think of basically. So when he was 17, he broke into his neighbor's house and then for the next 10 years, just committed crime after crime after crime and one of the articles i read said he was for two decades either awaiting trial or in prison (sighs) pretty much and here i thought this was going to be a story about how he drove a red car up lake street on a sunday right and his mustache was blowing in the wind (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so among his crimes there was breaking and entering attempted breaking and entering larceny from an auto breaking and entering again assault with intent to commit murder assault and first degree criminal sexual misconduct threatening and abducting a woman but releasing her unharmed and let's see that might be all that I've written down for that first 20 years between 17 and, and 37. Um, that seems like a good run. Yeah. No, I mean, that was a lot. That was a lot, right? So mm-hmm. he was finally sentenced to five to 10 years in prison for the assault and then seven to 30 years because the Michigan has a habitual offender law and, okay. and he qualified. Yes. Yes. So he served seven years, and in 1990, they paroled him. In fact, Uh throughout all of this, he was paroled over and over and over again, probably, well, 100% to the point where it was ridiculous and not good judgment. Um, But why? I, I don't know that it was anything specific about him. I think it was just kind of the way that the legal system worked at the time was that, you know, it was cheaper and easier to parole somebody. And so if they could have good behavior for a couple of years, then they could get out. And that was just the pattern. Mm -hmm. And so that did. He he got out (laughs) over and over again. So in September of 1991, a pair of sisters of Tyrone Township, um, their last name was Urban, and we'll talk a little bit more about them in a little bit, were walking home together. They figured they were safe, right? There were two of them. They were 14 and 16, and they were just headed home, and it's not, you know, that scary of a neighborhood. And uh, no. Leslie Williams decided he had other ideas and he raped and murdered both of them. (sighs) So over the next couple of months, so from September 14th, when this first rape and murder occurred until January 4th, 
two other girls went missing. On Sunday, May 24th, so a full five months after the fourth girl went missing, Leslie Allen, Allen, oh my God, Leslie Allen. (laughs) You're having the worst time with his middle name. I cannot say it. I'm just going to call him Williams. Williams (laughs) found himself in a cemetery for some reason. Not dead. As you do. just, Just there. And uh, there was a woman there. <laughs> if he found himself dead, like this would be a really anticlimactic end to the story. It'd be a very different story. It would be. So he found himself there and there was a woman there. She was 35. She was visiting her mother's grave. And this was in Springfield Township, which is about 40 miles north of Detroit. And Williams decided for whatever twisted reason had made him hurt these other four girls that uh, he was going to take this woman as well. And so he grabbed her and shoved her in the trunk of his car and threatened her. His plan was Mm -hmm. to take her away and rape and murder her like he had everyone else. But somebody saw him doing it. So the police caught up with him pretty quickly and rescued the woman from the trunk of his car. Um, and arrested him. So super lucky. Good, right? Yeah. This is Holy like man. the second story I've done recently where the police managed to stop somebody from getting murdered, like in the middle of it happening. It's true. Like, That's... go police. <laughs> Good job. Well, right. Guys. But what are the odds that you just stumble upon? Right. That somebody even like, any crime just happening. Right. And that somebody or, you know, somebody's able to call for help and they're able to get there in time. Yeah. Like, how long would it have taken for him to get her in his trunk and then drive away? And they managed to get her out of the trunk. Like, that was quick. Yeah. Or she put up a hell of a fight. So Maybe both. Maybe both, yeah. Um, Initially, so they arrested him, obviously. Initially, (laughs) he said he had not committed any other crimes. This was... it, It just... His first thing, he had not done anything bad since he'd gotten out on parole, and this just was a coincidence. Oh. Alrighty. However, as they're busy questioning him, they get a tip from a former girlfriend. And following the tip, they go out and they unearth the body of, oh God, Villanueva? I think that's her name. Mm-hmm. Villanueva? Um, yeah. From a shallow grave in Milford Township. <sighs> so after this, Williams decides that he's going to be a little more helpful. And so he confesses to a whole series of sexual attacks. He said he'd kidnapped and killed four teenagers. He led officials to the graves of the ones they hadn't found. Um, uh. Three of the teenagers, Villanueva was 18. And then the two sisters that we talked about earlier, the urban sisters, Melissa and Michelle, Um, had been missing since the fall. And then the fourth girl was the one that had disappeared in January. She was 15. Her name was Cynthia Uh. Marie Jones. Um, And so after they had uncovered the bodies and the stories matched and everything, they charged him with those crimes. Um, He also admitted to at least 11 sexual assaults and other crimes since he had been paroled in 1990. So basically, he had just gotten better at getting away with crime. Yeah. So because he is just trying to check all of the serial killer boxes, he also Mm -hmm. kept a scorecard where he would write down the victim's physical appearance and score them. 
Oh. Right? And he had a huge collection of trophies, including um, cameras that he'd taken pictures with, crosses on chains, pieces of cloth, film, matchbooks, pins, all of all of these things he had taken from them so he could relive his crimes. His only defense in any of this was, yeah, they didn't deserve to die, but I was so weak and I was afraid of going back to prison for raping them. So he had to kill them. That. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not a professional, but Another, I feel like that was not the proper logic there. No, I mean, one of the, the if you didn't want to go back to prison, like not committing a crime maybe, in the first place. I maybe not not all the raping. Maybe not. Maybe none of the raping. None of it. None of the raping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I am his age when he was arrested for all of this shit. And oh no, wait, that's a lie. You are almost his age. I am. <laughs> I am his age. When he was paroled. Okay. And have managed to commit very, very, very few crimes and certainly never rape or murder anyone. No, I've definitely never done those. Right. I'm sure I've done some other things, but... I frequently um, have to remember to slow down on the road next to the middle school here because it blinks at me if I'm going too fast. So that's, that's a law I break a lot. I uh, I did not make it to my car before the parking meter expired the other day. Uh, man. I did not get a ticket. Yeah. But as I believe I have stated before, I pay all of the tickets I get because I so thoroughly deserve them. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, and did you consider murdering, if someone was putting a ticket on your car when you got there, would you have killed them to avoid the ticket? No, but I have definitely been like, I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm right here. Right. Please don't. <laughs> I think that's different than, yeah. than his logic. So Yeah, no. Murder murder has never entered the equation. No. Not even not even a consideration. I mean, not on my end. I don't know about the traffic cops end. Well, I mean, they've never murdered you either. That's true. And I mean, I'm good with paying the tickets, but I don't feel like I deserve to be murdered. No. For leaving your car somewhere too long. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll pay for it again. It's cool. <laughs> right. Let me run through his sentences because it is an impressive list, and then Ooh. I want to tell you why any of this matters. Because um, it's a pretty open and shut case. Like there wasn't a whole lot of investigation. There weren't any big twists or turns. Like he was a kid who had a really shitty life, who then turned into a really bad dude who did bad shit. And even when they let him out, he continued to do bad shit. And now he's in jail. Like no twists or turns in this one. Yeah. No growth. No. No. No character development of any sort. No. Yeah. Not at all. So let me go through his sentences first because I found him on like... So Virginia has a locate an offender site and every state has some version of that. Mm -hmm. So I found him on the Michigan one and it listed everything he was sentenced for. And so I'm only going to go through the 19 for which he is currently serving time at Carson City Correctional (laughs) Facility. Oh my. Um, Because there was also a list of previous ones where he is no longer serving time for those because like. Presumably, they were the ones he was paroled on. Okay, so sentence number one. The offense was kidnapping, for which he pled guilty and received life. 
two. Mm-hmm. Offense is criminal sexual conduct, first degree, which means a weapon was used. He pled guilty, received mm-hmm. life. Three, homicide, murder, first degree, premeditated, guilty, life. Four, breaking and entering an occupied building with intent, guilty, 45 years. Five, wow. murder, first degree, guilty, life. Six, homicide, Um so I don't really know what all of this means. It says open murder statutory short stat, statutory short form. So that's some categorization of whatever. Is that the 15 year old? Maybe. I don't know. But he pled guilty. Or maybe it was like he, he's done so much murder. We're just going to assume this one is his too. Yeah. I, like statutory. I don't know. Or well, it says open murder. So I kind of wonder if it wasn't like they didn't successfully tie him to it other than his confession i don't know i, I really oh. know nothing about it but he pled guilty and they gave him life um seven kidnapping pled guilty got life eight kidnapping guilty life nine <laughs> assault with a dangerous weapon a felonious assault guilty <gasps> 10 years 10 kidnapping pled guilty life 11 Criminal sexual conduct, first degree, using weapon, guilty, life. 12, assault with intent to commit murder, guilty, life. I think that must have been the woman that he put in the trunk, right? Because that yeah, was the only one seems... he didn't kill. Yep. Um, he used a firearm at one point, so he had a weapons charge, felony firearms, guilty, got two years for that. Another kidnapping, guilty, life. Another criminal sexual conduct, first degree, actually three of those, that's offenses 15 through 17, for which he pled guilty and was given life. 18 was a murder, first degree, guilty, life. 19, assault with intent to commit a felony, guilty, seven years. So, fairly certain. There's one missing. What's that? There wasn't a parole violation in there? Um... Yeah, I, I, because I think, I think he thoroughly violated his parole. Right. Yeah, I feel like he probably definitely did. However, um, I don't think they bothered with that. I also don't think he will ever again have the chance at parole with, I didn't even count how many life sentences, but it was like 15, 16. Yeah, because yeah. he had one that was 45 years, one that was two years, one that was uh, seven years, and then everything else. Oh, and one that was 10 years. Everything else was life. Yeah. So that is the reason that this is important is because it really brought to light issues with the Michigan parole system. Basically, uh-huh. that there was very little that you had to do in order to gain parole, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um And so I looked at the numbers because that was what the articles all said was like, this brought to light all of these issues and the governor was really pissed off and blah, 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 blah. Um, But I wanted to see if it made any difference. And so I went through and pulled all kinds of data. You would be so proud. (gasps) So much research. Right. Um, And here's (laughs) what I found. I noticed that you untied your tie on your shirt as you were saying that. I did not. I was playing with it. It's still tied. It is tied. It's not what it looked like from here. I'm just playing with the strings. (laughs) I'm not that excited about the data, Diana. (laughs) 
1998, Michigan considered one or 13,814 parole possibilities. Like they interviewed for them. Um, they paroled 72.8%, which was um, 10,055 people. And they had a success rate, which means they did not come back to prison for parole violation. And I mm-hmm. think it also means they weren't rearrested for um, anything within their parole time. So, like, they went on to be good citizens, whatever. So, in 1998, of the 10,000-some-odd that were paroled, they had a 49.9% success rate. Percent success rate. So... More than half of them went back. We don't know what the... I didn't have any data going back further than 98. He was arrested in 91. So this was like as far back as I could go. I had it in my head that it was 90. He was paroled... He was paroled in 90. He was arrested in 91. In 98, there was a little bit less than a 50% chance that if you were paroled, you would not just go straight back. Yeah. So 2005, so more time has passed. They considered 21,038 applications. They paroled 46.6% of them, so 9,801 people. And their success rate was up to 55.7. So they paroled Hmm. far fewer, but more of them stayed out of jail. And then in 2013, they're finally starting to get a little better at it. So they looked over um, almost 16,000 applications. 64% of them were released. So presumably, so it's about 10,000 people. Um, Mm. I guess they're doing a better job picking the applications in the first place. I don't know. And almost 70% of them stayed out of jail. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know how much of that could be attributed to the fact that they let a bunch of teenagers get murdered because they were just letting everybody out of prison. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least it does seem to be moving in the right direction. So something is going well. I mean, we're still putting way too many people in prison to begin with. A hundred percent. And really, I mean, those are all like wonky statistics, right? Because there are a bunch of people who really shouldn't be imprisoned for what they're imprisoned for. And then if they get out and do the same thing again, like they still shouldn't have been there in the first place. But just looking at pure numbers, at least they're doing a better job of picking people that are not going to get caught again. Maybe not commit a crime, but also not get caught. Right. Which is, you know, I guess the important part there. Well, yeah. So. Hard to go into the legal system if you don't get caught. It's true. So there, um, another serial killer from Michigan for you. Next All week, right. I will, I will not do one of those things, either serial killer or Michigan. Maybe both, but I'll at least. Go <laughs> but at least drop one of them. Right. We'll see. <laughs> do you have a story for me? I do. I do. Um. So last week on Crime Crazy, I talked about the murder of Helen Priestley um, by her badly permed upstairs neighbor, Jeannie Donald. Yes. <laughs> they kept bringing it up. Because Helen was found in a blue Hessian sack, it was referred to as the sack murder. 
So the other night I was trying to decide, like, what should I pull from the story to be my thread? I wonder if there's been another murder called the sack murder. Hey, guess what? <laughs> there totally has been. That's <laughs> weird. Yes. And this one is actually before the one that we talked about last week. So we're going vintage again. Awesome. Christina Catherine Bradfield was born in 1874 in England. And I don't have a lot of detail about her early life. But I do know that by her late 30s, she was working in her brother's shop in Liverpool. Bradfield Tenter Tarpaulins. Wait, say that again. (laughs) Bradfield. Yeah. Tenter. T-E-N-T-O-R. Uh-huh. Tarpaulins. Okay. Is that her name? No, that is the name of the business. Of the business. Of the business. So what is the tenter part? I don't know. Okay. I think it might be they sold material and sacks and ropes and twine and things of that nature. Okay. So I wonder if tenter was like how you referred to a fabric that you would like protect something with. Oh, it could be. I did not look that tent up. Or. That's it could it be, be, but it was referred in the document several times as tentor. Well, no, I'm just saying they, they missed an opportunity. Maybe. <laughs> Anywho. Yes. So she started at the store in about 1905. She started out as a typist and then moved up the ranks to manageress. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> okay. So... I'm going to need everybody to start referring to me at work as a manageress. Um, I'm going to need nobody to say that shit to me. (laughs) She was described as a very quiet and refined lady, very regular in habits and with no male friends or love affairs. Well, good for her. Whose only hobbies. Oh, but wait. Whose only hobbies were doing a good turn for anyone she could beneficially help. Wow. It sounds like she was genuinely just like a really nice lady. And yeah, they called her a manageress. I mean, it, it was 1913. It's true. Part of Christina's job as a manageress was to be the supervisor of the two men that also worked in the shop. George Sumner had been employed there since about 1909 when John Bradfield took him from a boy's home. From, wait. So I've, well, like, kind of like adopting, but like for work? For work. So he was a slave. Well, no, he got paid a pound a week. I don't have any concept of whether or not that's good pay. It was apparently acceptable pay. I mean, (laughs) I guess, though, what were the other prospects? Like, maybe that was a good deal? I don't know. Well... Um, it was, they went into a little bit of his background. So actually what I pulled this from was really interesting. Um, the woman who wrote the article, I guess it was like 20 pages about this case is the great niece of the woman that was murdered. And she did all sorts of historical research and, and all of that. Um, so they they went a little bit back into actually more into the background of the boys than they did of her family because I suppose she knew about her family. Um, 
but like he had left home at 15 he was the second of they just said about 11 kids so apparently nobody really knew about 11 kids um and he'd been on his own at this point for you know like seven years Mm -hmm. so i don't know if he ended up in this boy's home at some point and this guy came along and pseudo adopted him for work purposes I mean, can we just believe that he adopted him and um, and then also gave him a job? Like, he adopted him because he was a loving person. I don't think he adopted him. It sounds like he gave him a job. And it sounds like the Bradfields were actually very nice people. Okay. Everybody spoke highly of them. Even the people that worked for them were like, no, they were great to me. Um, so, I mean, it does sound like at least they were a decent business and a decent family to work for. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to be just, happy about it. Right. But it's just such a weird. Yeah. It's, we just don't have that anymore. No, that would be highly frowned upon. Yes. Samuel Eltoff started working there in December of 1912. They were both hired as handcart boys. Jobs that doesn't exist anymore. No. Who ran, who ran errands between the shop and the works or the manufacturing facility. And their duties included stitching and sewing bags and keeping the shop clean. Okay. They were both good employees who were on good terms with their bosses. Sure. Once in a while, three or four pounds would go missing. And the owners made sure never to have their watches on their desk, but on their person at all times. But overall, it was a cordial relationship. The foreman of the works, having often observed the relationship between the three said that she kept the boys in their place and there was no familiarity whatsoever. Okay. Good to know. Chris. Well, you know, she was in an interesting position at that time being the manageress yeah. of two men. Yeah. Um, um, and there was another woman that worked in the office. There was a typist. Um, that's a pretty unique setup. Yeah. For the time. Yeah. It would be important to not have any familiarity at all right when you're the manageress <laughs> christina bradford was a creature of habit she generally got to the shop a little before eight in the morning to open up and she often stayed until the store was closed only she and john bradfield the owner of the store had keys if she wasn't going to be in early in the morning or if she had to leave early she'd leave the keys with the foreman but never with the other shop employees fair i mean money goes missing right as she was closing up the shop she'd start from the back and extinguish the lights as she went before turning off the gas at the front of the shop and locking it up because she worked in a retail establishment there was usually some money around she would keep a little in her desk because you need to have some money around the shop Mm -hmm. but any money from sales or accounts was put in her satchel and not left in the office Mm mm-hmm if it was a bunch of money, she'd give it to the foreman for safekeeping. But if it was between 10 or 20 pounds, she'd take it home with her for the night. I just see where this is going and it's not good. <laughs> well, we are on a crime podcast. I know. Things never go like, well. There's there's not going to be everlasting love at the end of this story. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday, December 10th of 1913 started out like any other day. Christina left for work at about 10 to 8, having told her roommate that she'd be straight home from work that evening. She was at the office before 8, but the boys didn't show up for work until 8.30. 
she was cross with them for being late. And she complained about it within their hearing. And she complained about it to the typist when she came in at nine. But they didn't say anything. And the matter was dropped. John Bradfield stopped by around 1030. And he received a message from his sister around three that afternoon regarding a payment that had been made. He went back to the shop, arriving at about five to six. Sumner and Eltoft were still at the shop with Christina and the typist. And the boys were working on stamping bags with the company initials on them. And John told Christina to keep them late if necessary to finish the job. Okay. He then looked in the drawer where the money was kept. He knew there was about seven pounds that he hadn't collected yet, but it wasn't in the drawer. Oh. About 6.30, John Bradfield left with the foreman yelling, Good night, Katie, to his sister. She and the typist were getting ready to leave, and there was no indication that she would not be back at work the following morning as usual. Right. About 10 minutes later, the typist left to catch her train. She later said that she saw Christina put away the office books and pick up her bag. The watch that she often had on her desk but put in her bag at night was not on her desk. Christina's flatmate, Mary Holden, uh, rang their place to say that she was going to be late coming home, but there was no answer. When she got home later that evening, Christina wasn't there, but Mary thought that maybe she'd just gone to visit her sister. She did that every few weeks. Okay. And maybe she hadn't felt well and decided to spend the night at her sister's. Mary figured she'd hear from her in the morning. The next morning, the foreman passed by the shop and found the door closed, as it should have been. Sumner and Eltoft showed up as usual, and Sumner swept the floor and lit the fire before Eltoft got there, even though that was Eltoft's job. The foreman phoned between 8.30 and 9 and was told by Sumner that Christina would be in at 9. The foreman then asked, well, how the devil did you get in? And Sumner told him that Christina had forgotten to give the keys to the foreman that night before, so he had given, so she had given them to Sumner instead. Uh, the foreman figured that made sense. Yeah, except that never happened. What? Right? <laughs> Am I wrong? She only gave <laughs> them to the foreman. Wrong. I've heard this she part. Only ever gave them to the foreman. John Bradfield called and was told by someone that he'd been given the keys and that Christina wasn't in yet. John Bradfield went to the office. As I am reading this, I'm just thinking about how prior to like 1930 or 1940, your whole day was just fucking running around. Yeah. If I need to talk to you, I need to go to your store. Oh, but I can't talk to you because you live half an hour away by car, which is like a day away in 1913. Right. <laughs> you, you know, if I want to talk to somebody at the other part of the company I work at, I have to haul ass over there. Like, just. Yeah, no, Everybody's it's true. in and out and wandering all around the place. It's true. So anyway, John Bradfield went to the office at 1040 to find Sumner, Eltoft, and the typist, but no Christina. He asked the boys what they knew, and Sumner claimed that the previous night she'd told them that she'd be late and asked they'd be good boys and come in early and open up for her. Eltoft didn't say anything. Bullshit. The typist called Mary, the roommate, and learned that Christina hadn't been home all night. John Bradfield then also assumed that Christina hadn't felt well while visiting their sister and had spent the night, but it seemed weird that she hadn't turned up yet. He sent, sent Eltoft over to his sister's, but she said that she hadn't seen Christina the night before. Oh. Which, again, if she had a phone, this right. all would have been solved last night. Right. 
At 12.20 p.m., Francis Robinson, a boat captain, entered the third lock at Lightbody Street near Stanley Basin of the Leeds-Liverpool Canal. I don't know what any of those things mean. Okay. <laughs> I accept that. I don't, think okay. it's, I don't think it's important. It's not, but I was afraid to cut any of it out in case it was important. <laughs> <laughs> As he went to open the gate, he found that something was in the way, so he used a boat hook oh. to investigate. He brought the obstruction to the surface and found the legs of a woman protruding from a sack. Ugh. The large grain sack had been drawn over the body tightly and sewn at the knees. And it also contained two pieces of iron meant to sink it. And the head was covered in additional three layers of sacking. <sighs> Further investigation of the body showed that she'd fought for her life as she had two black eyes and several wounds to her head, uh, later noted by the coroner to be too many to count. Her knees were drawn up and tied with rope around the thighs and waist. Investigation of the scene indicated that a sack had been dragged 70 to 80 yards to the canal and tread tracks from the wheels of a hand cart were found close to where the body was recovered. A possible murder weapon was found and the canal was drained to see if they could find her watch and the four pounds that they knew were missing. By 530, there were newspaper placards posted stating that a body had been found in the canal. Mary Holden's brother came. Nope. Mary Holden's brother-in-law came to visit her with a copy of the Liverpool Echo that reported the same. And they went out to buy a later edition of the paper for more details. From the description of the person's clothing, they recognized that it belonged to Christina Bradfield. The brother-in-law went to the police and was able to identify her body from the necklace she wore and her umbrella. And this is, again, where they went into a very detailed discussion about what she was wearing. She was wearing a silk, a silk blouse and a woolen jacket, and she had woven underclothes, which was apparently of note of something special. Okay. And she, um, her umbrella had a partridge handle and she was wearing furs and she had like 12 layers of clothing on. And then it said, this was very typical for a lower middle class, like professional woman. And it was like, lower middle bitch. I don't have silk. Yeah. I don't have furs. I don't have. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it just makes me feel hot. Even thinking about it. Oh, I'm so glad I did not. I did not live in previous times. I love air conditioning. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, just the, the difference in standard between yeah, what, what is the attire of a lower middle class woman now right. and then. Um, at one thirty AM on Friday, Samuel L. Toft was awoken and arrested in his home. Although he initially said that Christina had told him and Sumner to go home at seven the night before or the night she went missing. His father uh, confirmed that he had not arrived home before nine. Hmm. He also said that Christina had given Sumner the key, but that he had not actually seen that happen. Sumner had told him that later. As he left with the police, he changed his story. He said that when he was heading toward the door to go home on Wednesday night, Sumner had asked him to wait and said that he wouldn't be long. After about half an hour, Sumner appeared with something in a sack in the handcart. Sumner told Eltoff to take the cart and walked ahead of him to show him where to go. Eventually, they were going across a field when they ran into some stones and couldn't take the cart any further. So Sumner dragged the sack the rest of the way to the canal and dumped it in. And he said it was a sack full of rubbish. Right. 
And I was like, yes, of course, that's what that is. I believe you. But again, different standard of time where somebody's like, hey, I need to dump this trash in the river real quick. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Okay, I'll go with you. Sure. Maybe we have some more trash to dump in the river as well. Eltoft was charged along with George Sumner with causing the death of Christina Catherine Bradfield and remanded for seven days. But where was George Sumner? Well, first of all, he didn't exist. The name Sumner was an alias adopted by one George Ball, who took the name from a street that he had lived on. I was like, what do you mean he he didn't exist? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Didn't exist. Um... He was the second son of a family about 11 who had not lived at home since he was 15. And although he was presently 22, he told people he was 20. Prior to working at Bradfield Tenter Tarpaulins, he'd lived an irregular life. But under Christina Bradfield's wholesome influence, he'd grown up quite a bit. He soon developed a warm regard for her, and it was reported that he'd saved up his earnings and presented her with a set of furs as an expression of gratitude for her goodness of heart toward him. Which again, yeah, like I didn't get furs from my workmates on my birthday last week. (laughs) No, you did not. (laughs) Or just for being awesome. (laughs) Sorry to let you down. Um, I don't know what I would do with furs. I have one of my grandma's and like I'm a little embarrassed to own it, but then sometimes I bust it out and wear it. Right. I, I'm pretty sure our boss... Or, or I let Amanda party. wear it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or let Amanda wear it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was a trusted employee and regularly given duties above his station. He was described as having an attractive personality, was clean shaven with dark, glittery eyes. Ooh. Reports claimed that he was not addicted to the amuser craze of many youngs. Wait. So I think what that means is... He wasn't, like, he didn't ever leave the house to go have a good time. Okay. <laughs> but he stayed indoors in his lodgings like a good boy. Wow. He wouldn't go to the movies with his landlady because she got free passes in exchange for hanging the movie posters in her lodging house. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the search was on for George Bell. He was described as 22 years old, about 5'6", clean-shaven, with heavy, dark eyebrows, one of which was much higher than the other, and a (laughs) slovenly style of walking. So he always looked very quizzical. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I looked for a picture um, of this guy, because I was very curious about his eyebrows. And um, I couldn't... Well, I did find one. There seems to really only be one that exists. But it is a picture from pre-1913. And it's like a picture that was taken out of the newspaper. Like a picture of a picture in the newspaper. And right. I couldn't see anything. Bummer. I'd like to I know. I was very curious. Physical. Yes. Not. And I like that the official description was he, that he had a slovenly style of walking. Of walking. Not even yeah. a dress. But just this is how he walked. Right. No, no. Just walk like slob. Right. (laughs) That's funny. On December 20th, George Ball was recognized in Liverpool by a childhood friend, despite the fact that he was dressed like an out-of-work sailor, and he'd (laughs) shaved his eyebrows off and was wearing a pink flesh-colored eye shade and clear steel-rimmed glasses to lessen the glitter in his eye. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. That I mean, that is a different level of wearing a, a, a disguise than my guy with the ridiculous blonde wig last week. But right. <laughs> <laughs> shaving your eyebrows off. My God, you know, I bet the most <laughs> distinctive part of me is this eyebrow that's like seriously not in the right place. I'm just going to shave right. them off. <laughs> this is why I wanted to know what it looked like. Right? George Ball was arrested around midnight at his boarding house. When his room was searched, they found very little money. But Christina's watch was there, along with a gray suit with some blood stains, a tin of almost empty Vaseline, uh, which he used for the wounds that were on his face from Christina. Oh, okay. And I can hardly believe I'm about to say this on the internet. Five postcards that the coroner later described as filthy beyond description. The cards are obscene and the printed matter indecent. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. So... How dirty are we talking? If you want a... Not a hundred percent work appropriate, but you're probably not going to get fired for it. Time, Google 1913 postcards. Nice. You might see a nipple, but for the most part, you're not going to see anything at all. I am googling Obscene it while you continue to tell. And story. indecent. Obscene and indecent. Mm-hmm. Sumner Ball, whatever, was charged on Monday and remanded for seven days. In his statement, he said that a third unknown man had actually committed the murder, threatened him and Eltoft, and then told them to clean up the mess the best they could. Right. That is always what happens. Some rando yes. breaks in and makes you murder somebody. Right. Or clean up after Oh, no, he, like the rando murdered, but he, yeah, they had to clean up. Yeah. An inquest into Christina Catherine Bransfield's death was held on January 7th, 1914. A whole bunch of forensic evidence, including blood in the shop and on the clothes of Ball, maybe on the clothes of Eltoff, they couldn't quite tell. Detective Chief Superintendent Duckworth hinted that there might have been an attempted outrage prior to the murder. But that this presumption was based on the appearance of the woman's clothing rather than any revelation of a medical character. So let me translate Victorian into real talk here. Yeah. They think she might have been raped. But they only think that because her clothes were disarrayed, not because they had a look-see. Right. Yeah. I feel like if I'd been tied in half and shoved in a sack and then spent a day in the canal, my clothes would also be in disarray. Disarray, yeah. Yeah. My clothes are in disarray presently, and I've had none of that happen today. <laughs> well, I'm very glad you have none of that happen to you. No, I mean, it was a relatively uneventful day. I am just finding all of these extremely sexist postcards, Diana. I'm very unhappy about it. Wait, did you not pick up that they were porn? Uh, this one is, I mean, this one is not other than there's a kiss, but it's her kissing the dude and it says suffragette vote getting the easiest way because she's kissing. <sighs> right? Gross. No, like look up 1913 porn. Yeah, It's very, I mean... It's very lovely, but it's not. I, I did look up obscene, I mean, but I've seen worse. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. I yeah, mean, God, no, you have to... I've seen worse walking down the street. Come on. You can't just look up 1913 porn, by the way. 
Oh. Because it's not 1913. It's what just What did I search for? <laughs> oh. Well, now I just look at what I searched for. I thought that's what I searched for. If it is what you searched for, um, then this oh, is Oh, I not... searched for... Holy well... <laughs> So what I meant to search for, I am looking at my history here, was 1913 porn postcards. But what I did search for was 1913 porn postcards. Well, I have just seen some things I cannot unsee. Sorry. Don't listen to me. Wow. Mm -hmm. Continue with your story, please. Alrighty. L. Toft testified at the inquest, trying to further prove that he had nothing to do with the entire situation, but Ball offered no comment at all. After 15 minutes of deliberation, the jury of the inquest returned a verdict of willful... I cannot say willful murder. That is so hard to say. Willful murder. Willful murder. Actually, that is really hard to say. It's super hard to say. Against Bell and Eltoft, and they were further remanded until January 13th when they were committed for trial. At that time, Ball responded, I reserve my defense, while Eltoft stated, I am not guilty. The trial began on February 2nd with Ball and Eltoft charged with willful murder. <laughs> what? Willful murder. Uh-huh. And Eltoft also charged with being an accessory after the fact. They both stuck to their stories. Ball, that a third man had committed the murder, and that maybe there was even a fourth guy involved. Who knew? And Eltoft maintaining that he had nothing to do with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. After two days of testimony, the case was turned over to the jury. And the jury was warned against making moral judgments of Ball on the basis of the indecent photographs and unsubstantiated allegations concerning his relationship with Mrs. Kennedy the 60-year-old landlady that he would go to the movies with. Right. It took the jury an hour to convict Maul, Ball of willful murder and Eltoft of accessory after the fact. Ball was sentenced to death, but Eltoft, because he was younger and the jury thought he'd been unfairly treated was or influenced, was given four years. George Ball was executed at 9 a.m. on Thursday, February 26th, which, by the way, two months two and a half months after the murder like crazy fast that yeah that's not very much i guess we're not doing a ton of appeals or well so they did actually talk about um i don't know that ball ever appealed but they talked about l toft um was filing an appeal and then a further search of his place showed a or turned up a coin that might have been from the stolen money and with the appeal you can present new evidence so he's like mm, nope i'll just take my four years thanks oh well um george ball was executed at 9 a.m on thursday february 26 1914 at walton jail he never admitted his guilt and we still don't know why he killed christina Catherine bradford bradfield so are we assuming that he was pissed that she was pissed that he was late? No, because it seems like nobody much gave a shit about that. Right, um, but that was the only like offense that I... Right, and he did get away with a bunch of money, um, you know, several pounds, which at that time was several weeks wages. And there was a very thorough counting of every shilling of that. Mm-hmm. Um. 
And basically, he like went to a different part of town from where they knew he was. He shaved off his eyebrows. He made a couple of friends, took them all out drinking a whole bunch, bought some food, bought some more lodging, met a couple of girls, was going to meet up with them again. Like, he just went out and had kind of a baller week. Yeah. It's not worth murdering someone. No. No, like... I don't know save your pennies and just have a baller week right? <laughs> right everyone chip in a little bit you could have one even sooner well right i mean granted he was working for near slave wages in post-victorian england but and for a manageress for a manageress so there was some talk that he was in love with her um there was talk that he had sa- he had saved up some of his money and bought her some furs which again with the furs um <laughs> he had a photograph of her uh that he had acquired at some point um so there was talk that he was in love with her there was talk that there was a torrid love affair but even her flatmate was like yeah i mean i knew she worked with a guy named george more one-sided well right like you know he seemed like the kid had some potential (laughs) um you know so it clearly wasn't reciprocated right and then they they dragged the poor landlady in who just had some free movie passes and her husband worked across town right (laughs) So, we never know. He never backed down from that third guy story. Eltoff never said anything other than, I didn't know it was in the bag. I didn't know what happened. I just I just helped him dump it in the river, man. Um, and there wasn't any and they super just picked, obvious motive. And No, and they picked the wrong part of the canal to dump her in because uh, the bag got caught on the lock. Yeah. If they'd put it in a different place, she would have swept out to sea. They never would have found her. Right. No one ever would have known. They would have gotten away with it. Absolutely. So. Huh. Yeah. I so like, there you go. I like all of the insanely random details in that story. Like, there's no yeah. motive. There's no real understanding of what happened, like all the murder part. However, we know what she was wearing. And... Oh, in detail. <laughs> well, in the, the woman that wrote this, this great, great grandniece or whatever it is, um, she went through all the contemporary coverage and also all of the court records and all of the government documents. And everything was still there. She said the only thing that she just said didn't survive she didn't say what happened to it was the actual coroner's report but there was enough referenced in other documentation that she was able to pull some stuff right so i literally i only used one article for this which i don't usually do um but it was was, well it was really good but it was also 20 pages like i wasn't gonna find anything else out (laughs) gotcha yeah that yeah so my yeah. grandpa does genealogy, and so he has published a couple of books um, that are just these enormous, like, you know, like Harry Potter size <laughs> books mm-hmm. about our family tree. And I am certain that there is something in there. Like, maybe that's what I need to be doing is looking back through my family to find a crime and write 20 pages about it. You know, I would also think that. And we have um, on my mom's 
dad's side of the family. Somebody did that as well, like in the 60s. And mm-hmm. then one of my cousins apparently is doing some updates. Um, and it goes all the way back to the Doomsday Book, I think. Oh, wow. Like, oh, we was fancy back in the old country. <laughs> um, yeah, it didn't work out so great when we got here. But <laughs> um, so it went all the way back. And there's actually two volumes. It's Beach in America and Beach in Canada. And we have Beach in Canada because uh, the family split after the revolution. And my branch went up to Canada and the rest of them are down here. Um, yeah, no, there's nothing super like interesting in terms of the amount of information they were able to find but we've been up to nothing Mm -mm. i'm fairly certain we had a pirate Ooh, that's cool well you need to go back in time and tell your family to stop being so boring (laughs) in like 500 years i'm gonna have a podcast i'm gonna need you to commit some crimes not enough to change the family tree just enough no, to no, give no. me something to podcast about. And I know that you're already amazed that I'm 5'8". And <laughs> <laughs> wear my hair this short. But I'm going to need to trust you about this podcast. Right. I don't have time to explain what a podcast is. You're not going to get it. <laughs> no. Like, have you heard of the printing press? No? Okay. Like, conversation over. Just, just don't worry about it. Okay. Just, it's yeah. important. It's Someday you're going to have up to... Th- Someday... Even our family will have up to three books in our home. It's going to be great. Right. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. So speaking of podcasts, have you yeah. listened to any? I have. I listened to, I'm kind of, well, I think I say this every week, going through my backlog of all the stuff I've listened to. <laughs> uh-huh. And the one that I chose to listen to this week is called Criminal Broads. And it is a true crime slash history podcast where the host, uh, it's a single person. I'm trying to find her name desperately here. Um, it's a, a lady that does the podcast and she goes back in time and finds a lady criminal and tells the story of it. Very cool. It is very cool. So are these like badass women criminals or just all women criminals oh, or absolutely she did an episode on Griselda Blanco uh the godmother of cocaine oh yeah 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 um she did one on Carolyn Layton who is Jim Jones's right hand woman the latest one I haven't listened to this one yet um she's doing a two-parter I think it's going to be on the women of Jack the Ripper Talking about Ooh. the theories that it might have been Jill the Ripper. Ooh. Yeah. So lots of really cool stuff. She is, uh, she just released episode 23 and they're really fantastic. I enjoy it a lot. Cool. Oh man, she even got Harold Schechter on one. I missed that. That sounds very cool. Oh, talking about Belle Gunness. Yeah, I got to listen to that. <laughs> Diana's like, excuse me, I have to go. Um, podcast over. I have stuff to do. Yes. But first I want to know if you listened to anything new this week. I did. Um, I actually just sort of grabbed my, uh, you know what I did? I went on Twitter. So this will answer the question (laughs) that always comes up in like podcast, uh, groups on Facebook. 
um, of whether or not it's worth doing social media, like whether or not that actually mm-hmm. translates into downloads. Because I went on Twitter and I was like, I need to listen to a podcast. Let me just scroll down until I get to something that catches my eye and has a link. So I listened to <laughs> <laughs> scary stories to tell when you're drunk. Oh, do tell. Yes. So, <laughs> um, so first of all, just it was awesome. I listened to one of the early episodes, and I I never know whether I should do that because early episodes of independent podcasts tend to be kind of rough. The mm-hmm. sound quality sometimes, although theirs was great, but more like you know you just haven't found yourself yet. So, um, right. but this was pretty good. And so it's it's basically just they get drunk and then they tell scary stories. And some of them are fiction. This one was on Winchester, right? So the Winchester house and all oh, cool. that kind of stuff, right? So that was cool because I knew all about it, but then like it was also just really interesting. Um, and And I will say like the one thing about this podcast is it made me want to start another podcast where you have to get drunk before you record just in general i mean we could just amend what we do here. I know. it's true <laughs> this one is like sometimes drunk sometimes sober sometimes in my bedroom sometimes this is just all over the place but all over yeah, yeah. but theirs was yeah get together with friends drink and then tell a scary story um it was a whole lot of so if you don't like the getting off topic or talking over each other or whatever this would not be for you right but because it was a whole lot of that but in this hilarious Mm -hmm. like they are so wasted and having such a great time and i wish i was there kind of way (laughs) i'm gonna have to check them out right scary stories to tell when you're drunk i will link it on the website outstanding so um also guys i am totally up for some recommendations as well somebody has sent us a couple and they are on my list i just didn't get to them this week but if you have other favorite podcasts send those our way listening to two new podcasts every week we're never going to get through them all but we're going to make a dent yes we are so and hopefully you'll find some cool new stuff too that's right um anything else before I ask my no. last question? No, I think I'm good. All right. Well, then, I'm good. Diana, do you have any advice to leave us with? You guys, just stop making a big deal about porn. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> Didn't know what your advice was going to be this week, but that did not. <laughs> that wouldn't have occurred to me. I mean, I agree. It's just not that big. Well, I mean, presume, I think we have to assume that like this was porn that was made by consenting adults, blah, 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 blah. Right, Safe, right, right, right. But like just because somebody consumes porn doesn't mean that they oh, yeah. bludgeoned their manjuress to death. It's true. You know? It's true. Just like learn to be cool about stuff. Right. Unless it is porn of people bludgeoning other people to death. Well, no, that's not cool at all. But if it's just saucy postcards, which may or may not show a tiny bit of areola, go ahead and get on over that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Call your people. Call your people. This is not 1913 or whenever Diana's story took place. You can pick up a phone. 
You can, you won't, because that's weird, but you can at least text them. It's true. Text your people. (laughs) (laughs) And don't end up on next week's episode.